Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor John Breitner, who is Professor of Psychiatry at McGill University. He is also the Director of the Center for Studies on Prevention of Alzheimer's Disease at the Douglas Research Center. Welcome, John. Nice to be with you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to use your editorial in Alzheimer's and Dementia Journal. Not sure if it's published yet, John, but uh, exceptions that prove the rule why clinical trials fail to validate efficacy of interventions predicted by observational studies of risks for dementia Alzheimer's syndrome, in which you say epidemiological studies over the last three decades have identified associations between, between the dementia Alzheimer's disease syndrome and an array of putative factors, putative risk factors as uh, potential targets for interventions. Almost without exception, you say, however, the suggested interventions have proven unable to reduce morbidity from the syndrome. So before we get to the details of this, John, what is the difference between a clinical trial and an observational study? So an observational study is not really uh, an experiment. An observational study, uh, the investigator uh, looks at the state of nature. He looks at people who have uh, this or that uh, uh, personal characteristic, or maybe this or that um, part of their life history, exposure to a substance or an occupation or even their educational background, some attribute that is characteristic of or can be looked for um, among people. Uh, yeah. And then uh, the attempt is to uh, relate that particular attribute to an alteration in their risk of getting a, a disease, a, a condition. So it's um, uh, you, you could ask the question, for example, um, do, Paul, do tall people get more uh, thyroid cancer? Um, yeah. Uh, that's a completely uh, just some, something that's spun right off the top of my head. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing there that I know of, but it gives you an example. You, you, you identify people by their characteristics, and then you look at that, 
in relation to this outcome, whatever it may be, and you, and you can choose whatever it uh, may be. Mm. So this is not science, um, um, but it, it is astute, um, well, I shouldn't say it's not, it's not experimental science, let's put it that way. Yeah. Um, 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 it, it's an attempt to, uh, uh, looking at the world to draw associations between some attribute of people uh, and the likelihood that they're going to end up with a particular disease or condition. The okay. trial, on the other hand, is entirely um, a different proposition. So in a trial, we uh, recruit people who meet a certain set of criteria. Uh, you can make it any way you want, but uh, a person is either eligible or not. If they're eligible, you can enroll them in the trial if they're willing. Uh, and then the experiment is that you then randomly, typically randomly assign um, certain portion of the of this trial population to uh, an intervention, a medicine, um, uh, a prescribed set of uh, educational experiences. You can uh, an exercise regimen. You you can. Uh, uh, use different kinds of interventions. Um, yeah. And now uh, you're looking at a contrast between people who were assigned to that intervention versus those who were not, or those who were assigned perhaps to a different intervention. And now we're looking for, again, differences in their um, uh, an outcome. Uh, so you, you, might want, you might want to um, uh, set up a simple trial. Um, uh, does penicillin uh, help uh, people with uh, pneumonia? Well, we know the answer to that, uh, so it wouldn't be uh, an appropriate thing to do in, in this day and age, but you could take a group of people who had pneumonia and you could give half of them penicillin and half of them uh, something else, um, and you would show um, very distinctly that the people yeah. who got penicillin uh, were cured and the ones who were not, were, did not were did, did much poorly, much, much more poorly. So the, the, the analysis that we do in an observational study is all post hoc. Uh, it, it's really, we get data by observing what's going on. Uh, and then we do some analysis. I, I guess one deficient, one, uh, not deficiency, but one issue is that um, when we get a lot of data, we can always find relationships in those data, but that doesn't really mean causation, right? That's exactly right. Um, association does not mean causation. If there is causation, you'll see an association, um, but the same does not hold in reverse. At clinical trials, uh, there is a hypothesis, there is a study design, we have randomized people going into two cohorts, uh, but we cannot really do clinical trials. I, I guess we can. So when, when we have long running issues like Alzheimer's, it's really difficult to do a clinical trial, right? Very much so. And that's um, one of the points that we address in this little editorial that you're speaking of, which, by the way, has not yet been published, but I, I think it will be before too much um, uh, longer. So we now know that uh, Alzheimer's dementia, for example, is a condition that uh, evolves um, uh, in people over a period of decades, probably many decades. Um, uh, and there are um, 
exposures or characteristics or experiences that people can uh, can, can can have um, in their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, whatever, um, that may in fact influence the um, probability that they'll end up with dementia at age 75 or 80. So, so there's no way you could actually test that hypothesis uh, in, a, in a clinical trial because you'd have to expose people um, now and, and, and do the follow-up study uh, three or four decades from now, and that's, that's just not feasible. Uh, so there are, there are questions that can be asked in observational uh, studies that simply cannot be addressed in, in trials. So I, I've always been confused about this, John. So Alzheimer's is a disease. Is, is dementia sort of a, a bucket of symptoms or is it a, a different disease state altogether? Well, that's a very important question. Um, so dementia really is a purely clinical description. Um, people have dementia if they have demonstrable loss of abilities in a variety of different cognitive functions, memory, language, calculation, reasoning, uh, visual spatial design abilities, uh, uh, ability to structure things in an orderly way. Uh, these are just a few of the various kinds of uh, cognitive things you can measure. Um, when people lose um, several, not just one, but several of those abilities to the point where they're no longer able to function normally in their accustomed environment, uh, then we say that they have dementia. So there's no implication there, whatever, hmm. for anything going on in the brain or anywhere in the body. It's a purely clinical descriptive uh, entity. Yeah. It has many different diseases that are known to cause it. And when I speak of disease now, I'm talking about conditions typically that affect the brain, which is the source of cognitive abilities. Um, one of those conditions uh, is something called Alzheimer's disease, although that's probably not the best way to talk about it because if you talk about Alzheimer's disease, people instantly think that, that you're talking about dementia. And I'm not talking about dementia here. Yeah. I'm talking about a change in the, in the, in the, in the configuration, the structure, the chemistry, uh, the connectedness uh, in the brain. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a pathological state that evolves over time uh, and it provokes the dementia syndrome. Hmm. So several of my colleagues and I are now talking, uh, we, we sometimes speak about Alzheimer's dementia as shorthand. We, what we really mean is a dementia that can be ascribed to the occurrence of this kind of Alzheimer pathology. Or to be more explicit, sometimes we talk about the dementia Alzheimer's syndrome, meaning that uh, we, we identify the dementia syndrome and we attribute it to Alzheimer's as a causation. Okay. And so we use dementia as sort of a, a diagnostic, um, diagnostic measure. And then, uh, and then we can look, I, I guess, that the pathology of Alzheimer's, as you say, there are some distinct things we can look for in the brain before... Uh, before even things really get uh, get bad, I guess, right? So right. it's an old disease, isn't it, John? Um, we have known about this uh, over 100 years now? Over 100 years. The condition that we call Alzheimer's disease, which is the combination of the dementia syndrome and the pathology, 
um, was uh, described uh, in 1906 in a paper by Alice uh, Alzheimer. Um, and uh, this was actually something that occurred in a younger woman, a woman who's, I think she was 48 or 49 when he first encountered her and she died when she was in her early 50s and he autopsied her brain. He saw the pathology and before that, he had recognized that the severe psychiatric illness that she had, which included not only severe dementia, um, but also some um, uh, hallucinations and delusions that are sometimes present in this disease, but are not they're not characteristic of it necessarily. Yeah, it's it's really amazing. Uh, 1906. I would imagine a lot of the. I mean, we are living a lot longer now. And so uh, I don't know the statistics down, but I would imagine older people have a higher risk of getting Alzheimer's. But but finding this in 1906 is a remarkable, <laughs> a remarkable uh, accomplishment. Well, the thing is, back in those days, there was an assumption that getting old meant that you would become, in more most cases, uh, demented or have a dementia. You develop a dementia syndrome. Yeah. Okay, so it, they they called it then uh, senility, uh, which really just means nothing more than uh, brain aging. Um, uh, and the assumption was that they were one and the same. You got old, you got demented. Um, and and uh, the thing that drew Alzheimer's attention to his particular case was that this woman was in her 40s when she got this condition, which he recognized it as being the typical kind of dementia that you see in older people, but she wasn't old. So that's why he investigated her. And, mm. and that's what led him basically to his uh, early observations. And it took many decades then for people to convince themselves that uh, basically this is the same illness uh, or a variant of the same illness uh, that uh, causes dementia uh, in a very large number of older folks. So the, 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 the proportion of old people who have um, uh, dementia uh, doubles with uh, every uh, uh, five years or so. So by the, by the time you're uh, 90, uh, almost half of people will have dementia and it goes up from there. Um, in fact, uh, one of the things we talk about in this exception that proves the rule paper is the, the, posing the real question. We know that there are people who get to age 100 who don't have dementia. But the question is, are they exceptional? Uh, and we believe that they probably are, that there are many more 100-year-olds who have dementia than who don't. Um, so, so it's very definitely an age-related condition. Um, and uh, the reason that uh, it occurs in such a huge number of, of folks is, is still a mystery. Yeah. So so what's the state of the art? Uh, I, I want to go into details um, uh, in the paper, but what's the state of the art in terms of understanding the pathology uh, of the disease? If you look inside a, inside the brain of a, of a Alzheimer's patient, um, are there distinct attributes that we can look for? Well, the, yeah, there are the attributes basically that Alzheimer himself uh, described so the characteristic attributes of this pathological entity it's, it's the accumulation of um, clumps of a material called amyloid uh, in the extracellular space uh, in the brain. 
they, these are called plaques, either senile plaques in the case of old people who don't necessarily have dementia or Alzheimer plaques uh, in the instance uh, where they do. Uh, and, and this is a very, very distinct feature that you can see re very easily under the microscope. The other thing that you see very easily under the microscope is an accumulation of deformed protein called tau protein um, that's actually inside the cell body of the neurons. Um, and uh, uh, the, the, the protein is in a tangled form uh, so that they're called neurofibrillary tangles. And we now know the nature of the protein that accumulates uh, there. So those are things that you can see right away uh, when you look under the microscope. Uh, and or now we have uh, imaging techniques actually that can demonstrate the uh, accrual of uh, abnormal amounts of amyloid in the brain or even abnormal amounts of tangled tau um, in the brain. So th these have long been thought of as the characteristic uh, lesions of the disease. But I think it's now clear that there's a great deal more than that um, going uh, on, hmm. um, that the most important thing is that this, this, the connections among the neurons in the brain uh, are lost, that there's a, it's basically a disconnection syndrome that causes the cognitive disruption and the, uh, and, and, and the, the dementia. The ways in which the Alzheimer amyloid pathology and tau pathology contribute to that are still not uh, completely understood. And there's a great deal more going on in the brain of people who are developing Alzheimer type dementia yeah. um, that is just now being explored. There, there's an uh, intense involvement of the immune system. Um, uh, there are um, uh, uh, disruptions of uh, many kinds. And, and so we don't really understand even today what Alzheimer's disease pathology is and why it is that people who have it develop uh, dementia. We're working on it, but we don't really know yet. Yeah, so the, the amyloid beta and the, and the tau proteins that you mentioned, uh, do we see them in um, older people who, who, don't have, um, who don't have Alzheimer's? Absolutely. So uh, it's a question not of whether they are present, but to what degree uh, they are present, um, particularly so with the uh, amyloid plaques. Uh, almost everybody who reaches a certain age will have some amyloid plaques uh, in their brain. Um, and we now understand that the process of pathological development, if you will, that is the, the development of these plaques and these tangles and the disruption and the connections and so forth and so on. This is something that starts early and accumulates maybe in an almost exponential way um, mm. with the passage of time. So there are many, many old people who have um, what looks like typical Alzheimer disease pathology, but who have not yet for some reason actually developed the dementia syndrome. So that's why it's so important to talk about the syndrome separately from the pathology. Yeah. Uh, they're not the same. Is it uh, correct to think about them as sort of waste products, John, that the brain just, just didn't have the ability to get rid of them at a rate that is needed or that's something different? 
I think uh, there are some questions still about uh, whether that is the story with um, with with amyloid. Um, uh, it's it's much less common for people to have uh, abnormal physically abnormal uh, tau that accumulates um, uh, inside the neurons and eventually probably kills them, but after it's diminished their function. Um, that's probably the result of some kind of very active specific biochemical process that um, isn't just a, a waste uh, uh, product. And the amyloid that's in the plaques is, um, while it's in plaques, it's probably harmless, but there are uh, small clumps of amyloid that are not yet big enough to be deposited in plaques that are thought probably to be toxic to the neurons themselves. That's one of the principal theories of why this disease causes dementia. Yeah. And so the, the mere presence of them um, is not sufficient for the, for the disease because we see them in, in older people uh, at, at some level. But, but do we, are we to a point that we can actually say, you know, some kind of a quantification that if we see it beyond this level, then the likelihood of the disease emerging is very high? Uh, as long as you're talking in probabilistic terms, I think that's a fair uh, statement. There are uh, people, though, who have very substantial amounts of amyloid and tau uh, pathology um, who, are, who do not have uh, dementia. And in some instances, they don't even have much in the way of a, a mild cognitive uh, uh, syndrome. So it seems that people are quite variable in the amount of this pathology that they can tolerate um, before they uh, develop um, uh, the symptoms, the dementia symptom, symptoms or the cognitive symptoms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead. So this is some time ago, I remember, uh, John, I don't know what, what the latest is, that this inflammation of the brain was a leading, leading idea <laughs> for Alzheimer's. Uh, so, so where are we on that uh, on that idea? Well, that um, observation came about as a result of the studies of, uh, particularly of a study of a group of uh, investigators in in Canada, um, who uh, found that when they looked for it they found evidence of a great deal of uh, inflammatory activity in the brain. Now that surprised people because up until uh, some years before then, it was taught that the brain was what's called an immunologically privileged site. So the usual kinds of immune reactivity that you can see in, 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 you know, in the periphery, in the arms, legs, and elsewhere in the body, just didn't happen there. But if you began looking for other kinds of immune activity, that is activation of certain kinds of cells that secrete um, a, a variety of different chemical messengers that attract other cells or that uh, uh, are, are themselves injurious to surrounding tissue, or there's, a, there's dozens of them or hundreds of them probably, um, that, that this was present in people with Alzheimer's disease in their brains to a very substantial degree. Um, 
And so these people thought, well, gee, uh, maybe it's not the, uh, uh, the plaques and the tangles that's causing all the problem. Uh, maybe it's that these uh, abnormal features are provoking a very intense immune response. And in the process, the immune response can be very destructive to the surrounding tissues, including like the connections of the, of the neurons. So that was a, a, a very powerful and uh, uh, important hypothesis, particularly during the 1990s, when the thought was that um, if you could somehow or other suppress this intense immune reactivity in the brains of people who had Alzheimer pathology, that maybe you would suppress their uh, development of symptoms. Hmm. And that even came to the point where there was a, a whole um, a large number of, of, of uh, randomized trials that were conducted giving people uh, either who had the Alzheimer's dementia or mild cognitive symptoms or people who cognitively normal but uh, were known to be at risk of later developing symptoms, giving them a variety of different kinds of anti-inflammatory treatments. Bottom line is it didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So again, uh, causation um, is an issue. So, so you have a paper on, on something really specific in this area in 2018, bidirectional association of cerebrospinal fluid immune, immune markers with stage of Alzheimer's disease pathogenesis. And, and you have a trial um, here. Is that the PREVENT-AD trial? Um, well, Prevent AD is not a trial. Prevent AD is a is a is a program of uh, uh, many different kinds of studies in in people who are at risk of developing uh, Alzheimer's disease pathology and Alzheimer's dementia. Yeah. Um, but the, there was a trial called Intrepad, which was a, a we, we gave a, a, an anti-inflammatory drug, naproxen, which you can buy over the counter, yeah. uh, to, to people who were at risk of developing uh, cognitive symptoms. And we did it over several years. Um, there was a placebo arm in people who got a, a blue tablet that wasn't naproxen. And, and um, uh, what we discovered was that there was no protection um, uh, against the development of symptoms or um, dementia eventually um, in um, people who, who, who got the active, active treatment. So this, for me at least, I was one of the people who was very interested decades back now in this whole idea that inflammation could be a powerful uh, provocateur, could be causing a lot of the damage in the brains of people who were, had Alzheimer's uh, pathology and out, were developing dementia uh, symptoms. That turned out to be um, not the case. And this bi-directional paper that you're talking about showed that if you look in the cerebrospinal fluid of people who have various stages of uh, evolution in this uh, process, so some, some of them actually may have dementia, some of them may have milder symptoms, um, and you can characterize them according to whether they have a significant amount of accumulation of amyloid or a sig significant amount of tau pathology as well, or neither. Um, and, and then you can look in their spinal fluid at immune markers that are thought to represent this kind of immune activity on the part of the, the brain's uh, immune cells. And what we saw 
surprised us because what we saw was that people who had got to the point of developing Alzheimer pathology but didn't yet have tau pathology, um, uh, they actually had um, what appeared to be a depressed uh, state of immune activation represented in their spinal fluid. And later in the disease, the uh, evidence of immune activity went back up again. So this led us to wonder, in fact, whether um, the body may draw on immune activity as a way of fighting off the amyloid pathology. Yeah. So that the people who had, it's, it's putting the cart before the horse, so the people who had um, lesser immune activation were the ones who developed the Alzheimer pathology, not the other way around. Uh, it yeah. wasn't the, that it, it wasn't that the pathology caused immune depression. It was that the immune depression was permissive to the development of the pathology. And this is a a, a, a theory that um, is still being investigated uh, uh, today. Suffice to say that there are dozens of very very well equipped laboratories around the world now that are studying very intently. Um, this process of immune activity, and it's, it's a very complicated process, hmm. but looking at it in relation to um, people developing uh, either the Al Alzheimer's disease pathology, or if they have the pathology, whether or not they develop symptoms. I hope that's clear. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, we have a lot of autoimmune diseases, but generally speaking, the immune response is a good thing, isn't it? <laughs> if, if it is within um, within certain limits. Right. So yeah, a, a lot of normal physiological functions can become deranged. Um, um, it's just part of life. Um, but for the most part, uh, thinking just in evolutionary terms, the ability to mount this kind of immune reaction or immune response um, it, it must be there for a reason, and, and we do know that people who have immune deficiency conditions don't do very well. I mean, I guess the most classic example of this actually is, is AIDS, where the HIV virus basically destroys a part of the immune uh, system that turns out to be very important for recognizing foreign substances and, and uh, responding to them. So these folks typically die of a uh, of various kinds of uh, often uh, in infectious processes. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting uh, study and observation. And I don't know much about this, John, but the the feeling I get is that reducing inflammation, reducing inflammation is, uh, uh, physicians say it's a good thing. So can we generalize this observation that perhaps reducing inflammation is not necessarily a good thing? Well, uh, inflammation is there for a reason. Yeah. Uh, uh, physiologically and in evolutionary terms. But like many biological processes, it can go awry. It can become exaggerated out of control or it can become depressed for one reason or another. So uh, one very current example, it's now pretty clear that um, the thing that kills people with COVID more than anything else is that they have a gross exaggeration of cellular immune responses 
in their um, um, mostly in their in their in their lungs and their, their respiratory tree. Um, and they speak of a cytokine storm. So these various chemical molecules that are released by these cells are called, among other things, cytokines, and they are very toxic. They are there for a reason. They are there to attack a foreign body and to disable it or destroy it. But in excess, it can actually turn on itself. And this is what happens with the cytokine storm in, in COVID. And it's many people wonder uh, whether part of the pathology of Alzheimer's disease, particularly in the later stages, may be a result of some kind of excessive inflammatory response, mm. the body trying its best to eliminate the pathology that's already there, and that the immune reactivity part may actually provoke or exaggerate the, the, the symptoms. Yeah, so uh, in Alzheimer's, is there any sort of feedback mechanism, meaning the immune response creates inflammation and the inflammation then uh, creates uh, more amyloid beta and, and uh, tau-related uh, issues? Is there any sort of feedback mechanism that we can see? Not that I know of, but uh, that isn't to say that um, people aren't studying that. I'm, I'm just not uh, aware of that. Um, you, you know, uh, Amyloid deposits in the brain are probably recognized as foreign bodies. Yeah. Even though the amyloid itself is made up as a normal part of the biochemical constitution of the body and, and, and the brain, um, if it aggregates in these particular uh, forms, it may be recognized as a foreign body. Um, and um, it, it's... Um, uh, so I mean, so so you you ask whether um, the thing feeds on itself, and I think the answer to that is that we we simply don't know, yeah. uh, ex except that it seems that in the later stage of the disease, when there's prominent tau pathology, um, there's a lot of immune activity that looks like it should be probably be very nasty. I want to go into your more recent paper, uh, again, cerebrospinal fluid protein markers suggest a pathway toward symptomatic resilience to AD uh, pathology. Uh, so, right. so another study here. So what does this study do? Well, ba basically, um, uh, we talked a little bit earlier about the idea that a certain level of pathology will probably produce symptoms in some people, but not in others, and that there's a great deal of variability yeah. in the um, 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 degree of symptom expression for a given level of pathology. So what we did, uh, my uh, student uh, Pierre Meyer and I uh, did, uh, was to examine um, uh, spinal fluid um, markers of immune activity uh, in people who had varying degrees of, of um, uh, pathology and looking specifically at whether um, the immune markers, we made up a, a, a basically an index out of them by uh, summarizing a whole grouping of them, um, whether those, the level of those markers would predict uh, 
who had symptoms and who did not uh, with a given level of, um, of, of pathology. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the surprising finding there was that um, uh, at least uh, in the earlier stages of the development of the pathology, having more immune marker activity in your spinal fluid, at least these particular markers, predicted that people would have actually better cognitive function or that they would decline more um, slowly, uh, even to the point that you could uh, look for differences in clinical diagnosis as to whether people would have uh, dementia versus mild cognitive impairment versus no impairment. This seemed to be a function not only of the pathology, but also of the degree of immune activity that was represented in the spinal fluid, hmm. and that the immune activity, at least in this particular uh, series of, of, of observations, appeared to be beneficial rather than harmful in terms of preventing symptoms. So that's why we talked about symptomatic resilience. Yeah. Does it have any sort of therapeutic implications? Can, if, if they are beneficial when we find them, can be supplemented somehow? Well, the, you know, um, in theory, yes. Um, uh, we're miles and miles away from that. Um, up to this point, we've only looked at a very small number of immune markers. As I indicated before, there are dozens, if not hundreds of them. So one of the things that we're actually doing now is looking at people who are um, in various uh, stages of the development of the pathology and looking to see, um, to assaying now, not just six or eight or 10 of these markers, which is what we did before, but literally uh, scores of them <clears throat> using a new very powerful methodology that allows you to assay a whole host of different markers at the same time. Um, and what we want to do actually is to essentially elaborate on the experiment that we just talked about, which is, but now uh, looking in, in very exquisite detail at a whole range of different markers to see whether they're going up, going down, whether the markers going up, uh, uh, do, do they go up only after the pathology is present? Do they go up before the pathology is present? If they go up before the pathology is present, is that actually preventing the development of the pathology in some cases? So basically it's just like a, a microscopic uh, view of the phenomenology of all of these different immune um, uh, processes yeah. occurring in the, as people are developing the disease, and then how does that relate again to the development of symptoms? Yeah, it, it's, it sounds to me that it's a very interesting multifactorial problem. So I would imagine, you know, sort of the artificial intelligence techniques might be useful to sort of piece out. It's a really complex phenomenon, right? Well, our hope is that we'll find a, a, just a few uh, markers that are decisive in terms of, you know, um, whether you get symptoms. Um, <clears throat> and because the immune process, immune response is such a complicated phenomenon, we need to simplify it somehow. And then we always need to be mindful of the fact that when you start mucking about with uh, um, the, the immune system, you can have all kinds of unexpected and unintended consequences, not necessarily good. Um, so one needs to tread very lightly and very deliberately here with this kind of approach. But the, your original question is, does it hold potential as a possible treatment for prevention of symptoms? Uh, the answer to that is potential? Yeah. Yes. 
<laughs> we hope so. I want to ask you in conclusion, John. I I, I don't know anything. I, I haven't really studied this. I know that there was a controversial FDA decision just last week. Um, do you do you, have you studied it? But what is the mechanism and why is it so controversial? Well, the mechanism is uh, giving people um, um, antibodies. Uh, against amyloid, um, the hope is that by removing amyloid either from the plaques or um, uh, from micro clumps or amyloid that's inside the walls of the vessels, we haven't talked about that, but that's another place where it accumulates. The amyloid hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease would put it that the amyloid is toxic and that therefore you want to get rid of it. Now, we know from other trials already that you can get rid of the amyloid without actually improving the clinical state of the patient. So, so that um, it's not as simple as that. Nonetheless, this new antibody had some very special characteristics. Um, uh, and it, uh, in earlier uh, trials, it was shown that people who got high doses of this aducanumab, it's a monoclonal antibody, um, uh, uh, high doses seemed in some uh, experiments to do better uh, cognitively uh, than those who got lower doses or those who got um, a placebo. For this reason, the drug company uh, Biogen um, um, mounted two huge uh, phase three uh, clinical trials with hundreds of people uh, in whom they gave varying doses of this antibody, aducanumab, uh, over time and then studied their um, degree of symptom expression or improvement. Yeah. Um, the early data from these experiments was very uh, disappointing. And it appeared that there was no possibility that the drug was going to be doing any benefit. Hmm. And so for this reason, it was announced that the trials were being stopped um, because they brought some potential harm, not much, but some, uh, and they appeared to have almost no chance of producing a benefit. And then the extraordinary thing happened, Hmm. um, which is that the company then went pouring over the data And they discovered that the people who received the highest dose, it appears that they might have actually had some clinical benefit. (laughs) And they did some some more uh, uh, analyses. And in one of the trials, uh, there had been a protocol change in the middle of the trial. People who had a particular genetic makeup were not allowed to have the highest dose. Uh, But then that was changed. And the people with this particular gene were now allowed to have the highest dose. And those people in particular seemed to do pretty well. Mm-hmm. So the company went back to the FDA essentially and said, look, we in the high dose groups here, uh, we do have evidence in one of these trials that there really is benefit. Um, and in the other trial, not so much. It was it was equivocal. Yeah. So they had one positive trial when they sort of cherry picked the high dose group, which is not an unreasonable thing to do, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, and in the one trial, they had evidence of uh, efficacy, and in the other trial, not. Okay. 
so the FDA was faced with this uh, uh, dilemma. Um, uh, can we really deny uh, people this uh, drug where there's at least some evidence, if not conclusive evidence, of efficacy? And of course, what it comes down to then is, well, how much harm are you doing? Yeah. And that answer has evolved over time. So as we've learned a lot more over the last half dozen, dozen years about the harm that these uh, anti-amyloid uh, immune treatments do. And we've learned ways to control it. They're elaborate, they're expensive, um, uh, and they're not easy, but it can be done. And so uh, I think in a very controversial decision, which was not supported by um, sort of the classical pe people who do trials for a living, so to speak. Yeah. So they said you didn't meet your endpoint. You really can't. You can't um, give this to people. And the answer came back: We don't have anything else that really works to give to people. <laughs> yeah. um, the harm is 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 limited. Let us put this into practice and let us follow very closely the results as we put it into practice. So that's basically where we are. A lot of people uh, would not have done that, um, and uh, they've been pretty vocal about it. Um, uh, the, the other group is represented primarily by public interest groups like the Alzheimer's Association. They've lobbied like fury to have this thing approved for use, at least on a trial basis. So that's where we've ended up. Yeah, I remember, wasn't there some sort of an amyloid um, vaccine trial? Or is, is, is yes. it? A... Yes. That, that there have been many different attempts to um, um, induce uh, immune responses or to passively transfer immune antibodies to people yeah. uh, to, 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 to attack the, uh, the amyloid in brain. And most of the results have not only shown no benefit, but have actually shown substantial risks. So people yeah. have died, developed. Uh, so one of the reasons why people were a little bit leery about uh, approving this, uh, this uh, particular compound, aducanumab. But the truth is, I think that we've learned quite a lot about how to uh, minimize the, or at least reduce the risks associated with these immune treatments. Uh, and we did have this quasi-positive result in a subgroup. Um, and um, I think people will be talking for a long time about whether or not this was the right decision, but I think ultimately the data will tell us. Um, yeah. the, phase four, the phase four data will tell us because it is a requirement um, um, of the you know, administration of the drug that um, results do be reported back so that it will be possible to collect data on the actual effect of the, of the, of the, of the drug uh, in clinical populations. Yeah. So in conclusion, John, I know that you have done a lot of work in this area and continue to do so. So um, looking forward five, 10 years, um, what, what, is, what is your sort of speculation? Are we going to solve this problem? I mean, the problem is in terms of aggregate numbers is only getting bigger as we all get older. Absolutely. Uh, what do you think? What is your gut feel in terms of whether we are getting closer to solve this problem? Well, I guess I there. My gut feel has two arms. So one arm is that most of the assumptions that we have at present about what's actually causing the cognitive symptoms in Alzheimer's disease are only partly correct, if at all. 
um, that we've been barking up the wrong tree for a long, long time because it's the only tree we've had in sight. Um, the other, but the other part of my um, uh, prognostication or hope at least <laughs> is that, you know, laboratory techniques and, and uh, experimental techniques uh, have become so powerful uh, with multiplex uh, assays of uh, dozens of different uh, molecular species at the same time, the application of artificial intelligence to huge amounts of data and so forth, that eventually I think the truth will out, uh, not necessarily because people will have chosen um, the right hypothesis to investigate, but that it will probably make itself apparent. I happen to think that the immune response uh, part of this is going to be important, but that's just a guess on my part. It's where I choose to devote um, my energies. But I want the data to tell us the answers. Rather, I, I don't think that doing traditional hypothesis-driven uh, kinds of research in this field has gotten us very far, and I don't think it's likely to get us much further until we can come up with some new hypotheses. And I think the data are going to suggest the hypotheses rather than the other way around. Yeah, yeah. It is a complex organ. Let's hope that we will solve this problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'm 77, so I hope so too. <laughs> <laughs> this, has been, uh, this has been great, John. Thanks so much for spending time with me. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thanks. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.